This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash for the love. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. I just finished this interview. So that was what that was about. Because right now we're in a series called For the Love of Facing Your Fears. Felt like an important conversation to host across a handful of channels, particularly this one today. There's something that most women face, frankly, that's created fear and shame as far back as any of us really can remember, and it involves our own bodies. So like, for example, our periods, let's start there. Maybe you had a very like normal, healthy talk with your parents about what to expect and what this meant and what's going on internally. But so many of us did not get a lot of information about it. And that's probably because the generation before us had even less. So that change in our lives as a teen or preteen for a lot of us, was accompanied by surprise or fear or even shame. And then, you know, for women, there's still so much mystery shrouded in our reproductive systems and what we can rightly and normally expect to encounter throughout the different decades of our lives, you know, through childbearing years, all the way to menopause and beyond. And then you compound it with stigma that is layered on, sometimes by religious structures, sometimes just by cultural conversation, sometimes by patriarchy. And I mean, you have a recipe for pretty severe cognitive dissonance around our own bodies, which is 
sad and unnecessary. And of course, let's be fair, in some cultures and countries, the stigma is even stronger, so much so that women don't even have access to basic products and services to take care of their their bodies. And so we are here to say we should not have to fear the normal and beautiful progression our bodies take. We should be able to talk about it with each other. We should be able to rely on good scientific information from professionals, not quackadoos, right? We should be able to trust that more research and more answers are coming all the time and ultimately to live peacefully inside the experience of natural changes that happen in our bodies with experts who are listening and caring for us as we go, which is why, gosh, we're so grateful for our guest today. She's made it her mission in life to open up this conversation around female bodies and our menstruation cycles and our reproductive systems and all the sort of changes that we go through. And she's also taken to the internet to, well, basically, I guess, fix it so that there's more good and helpful and true information from professionals out there for us to learn from. You guys get excited because today we have Dr. Jen Gunter. A ton of you already know her because she is such a leading voice around this conversation. Let's see. She's an internationally best-selling author. She's an obstetrician gynecologist, more than three decades of experience as a vulvar and vaginal disease expert. She's been called the world's most famous and outspoken gynecologist by The Guardian and her New York Times and USA Today best-selling books, The Vagina Bible, hello, and The Menopause Manifesto, which I bought six months ago, have been translated into 25 languages. She's the host of Ginsplaining, which is a CBC Amazon Prime video series that kind of highlights the impact of medical misinformation on women specifically. She's also the recipient of the 2020 NAMS Media Award from the North American Menopause Society. Dr. Gunter's 2020 TED Talk called Why Can't We Talk About Periods? received more than 2 million views in its first six months, which led to the launch of her very popular podcast on the TED Audio Collective called Body Stuff with Dr. Jen Gunter. Finally, she's got a brand new book out that I just got a few days ago called Blood, The Science, Medicine, and Mythology of Menstruation. And of course, she also writes the popular Substack newsletter called, you guys, The Vagenda. I just wish I'd have come up with that. So she talks about her own personal experience with her body and with her health and with pregnancy and how that has fueled her passion to fix the medical internet. You guys, she's smart. She's direct. She talks plainly. She debunks junk science. She's just a relief in a conversation that is sometimes shrouded in confusion. I was hanging on her every word, and I think you will too. So I am delighted to share this conversation with the incredibly knowledgeable and passionate Dr. Jen Gunter. Well, lucky us today. I'm so happy to meet you, Dr. Gunter. Thank you for being here. Thank you for who you are in the world. Your message and your expertise is so necessary and good right now. So thank you for being on this little show. 
Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. So I've told my audience a little bit already about you and your work, your very impressive credentials, just discussing our collective experiences, women, just nonstop, really. Like there's always something new to face. There's always something new going on in our bodies. We're always hitting a new stage of life, periods to menopause and post. And so I wonder if you wouldn't mind, let's just start here. Let's roll it all the way back. Would you mind talking to us about your earliest experiences with changes in your body, the kind of information you did or did not get, and how that your personal experience in any way has affected really your life's path, your choices, your area of expertise, and the work that you do. Sure. So I probably thought about my body maybe a little bit earlier than most people because I had a a bunch of medical issues when I was 11. So, you know, like your kid, you don't think about your body at all. And when I was 11, I had a skateboarding accident and I ruptured my spleen, which is like a big deal. I wasn't a good skateboarder. I mean, I like, you know, it was a silly fall on the street, but anyway, so I fell and that led to all kinds of, you know, investigate, you know, emergency room trip. This is before they had CT scans or ultrasound. So I had to have a procedure called an angiogram. And so I had to have all this like incredibly sort of high tech, what seemed to me to be very high tech stuff done. After that was all settled and they were able to not, I didn't have to lose my spleen. All those tests turned out I had kidney disease. So then I had to have all kinds of, so I basically spent the whole summer, you know, having invasive tests and talking to doctors and my mother, you know, didn't have, you know, she probably left school when she was 13 to work. They grew up in the North of England and that was very common. You know, she wasn't from a social class that was going to go on to, you know, to high school and university. And so she found all the biology just incredibly complex. And so the sort of the seminal moment for me was I was sitting in the office with the pediatric urologist and he was trying to explain my kidney disease to my mom. And it was clearly going over her head. And he looked at me and he said, it's your body. You should know about it. So why don't you switch seats? And I, you know, I think he did it out of frustration, but you know, I was precocious and interested and it all made sense to me. And that's kind of how I got interested in how the body worked. So what did your path look like to get from there, sitting in that doctor's office, discovering autonomy over your own body at that age to now, how you got to where you are now? Well, so then, you know, I ended up having to have a kidney removed again, more tests and all kinds of stuff. And then I was fascinated with medicine because, you know, I was I was, you know, at that point 12 and I looked 20 and people treated me like I was 20, which is probably not good, but for me it was. And I just thought, wow, this medicine is like super cool. I really like this. And so that's when I decided I was going to be a doctor because I just thought this was really interesting and neat. And, you know, I, I had no concept obviously it was 12 at the time, but, you know, I just was really fascinated by it. And so that's, you know, I decided I was going to be a doctor you know, that was also the time it was the 1970s and people didn't encourage women to go into medicine. You know, my mother hadn't gone to high school. Right. So, you know, you think about, think about that. So it was, you know, people kept saying, oh, well, you'll change your mind. And I was like, nope, nope, I won't. (laughs) And so, yeah, so that's, you know, I 
chose high school, you know, extra credit classes and things based on that and my my undergrad and everything. And, and that led me into medicine. And it led you into a really specific niche of medicine. I'm 49 and in perimenopause. And so all of a sudden this year, I just woke up and went, who can help me? Like, I, this can't just be me. There's got to be more. And I could really uplink that lack of information all the way to the beginning, at least in my story. I mean, the stuff I knew about periods was this big. That wasn't a real robust conversation. Really, any of us were having at home with our parents, at least in my world. You know, we had this very minimal education at our schools, which was skeletal at best. Right. And so I'm hopeful that things are getting better for our kids, for the next generation of women. But I've heard you talk about how tough it is, and it is, to uproot centuries old attitudes and this sort of systemic oppression of women that still crops up today and in our healthcare, it's never more clear. And so I wonder if you can talk, maybe going backwards a little bit, about how those messages around our periods first began and really have set the stage for everything that we know about our bodies and the way that we know to talk about them and where we're looking for. So I completely agree that, you know, we we have not moved the needle that much further from when I was, you know, in you know, middle school getting quote, quote, sex ed, which is so ridiculous to call it sex ed. It's your body. You're having sex with your uterus. Like, what are you even talking about? So, you know, I don't think it's moved that far. I think the average high schooler probably graduates knowing more about frog biology than, you know, than human biology and like no shade to animal physiology. It's super, super important. However, High school should also be teaching you more practical information as well as things to advance you academically. So I think that many people start out with varying degrees of understanding and a lot of mythology. And I think that that sets people up to go down pathways of, you know, believing the wrong thing about their body, about not then knowing how to challenge a physician or a nurse practitioner in the office, or, you know, not knowing when they're getting bad advice. And I think the the thing that didn't exist in the 70s and 80s and 90s that exists now is social media. Because I was just sent a clip yesterday from somebody who's, you know, not a physician, but who gets on a lot of podcasts talking about how it's terrible when women take the pill every day and don't have a period because then they're not releasing toxins from their body. And I'm like, okay, that's a belief. That's not science. Yes. Yeah, that that's 5,000 years old. Uh, maybe people believed it, you know, 50 years as well, but that's ridiculous. It's just blood. It's no more like if you take blood out of your arm and draw it from, you know, to go give a blood sample, it's the same blood. It's picked up, obviously, cells from the lining of your uterus and some vaginal discharge and other things along the way. But it's blood. It's not this like special, toxic, you know, witchy, womeny, you know, swill. And there's people with massive platforms still promoting that, writing books that are being, you know, bestsellers. And so how does the average person counteract that? It's hard. It is hard. It's so hard. There's so much misinformation out there and so much of it's competing. It's competing information. This person says this, this person says, never do that, do this instead. And we're not, at least 
our generation is not coming from a place of secure knowledge in the first place. We weren't handed a lot of factual and helpful information about our bodies. And I'm hopeful that your work and work of other doctors like you are going to help us. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing. You continue to see sort of a lack of information around our bodies and our reproductive systems, even as you entered your own pregnancy. Would you be willing to share a little bit about that experience and how that spurred you on even further? to break open the world wide web so that more and better and truer information could become available to women. Sure. So I had a very complicated pregnancy and, you know, as an OBGYN, I was obviously aware of all of the risks. I had a triplet pregnancy, you know, I'm like, you know, go big or go home. And unfortunately I ruptured my membranes at 22 and a half weeks and delivered my first son who we elected to not resuscitate because survival at 22 and a half weeks is like 1% and intact survival is like zero. And so I managed though, to stay pregnant for the next two weeks two well, three and a half weeks actually. And I got to I can't do math, 26 weeks, I three and a half weeks, I got to 26 weeks when I got a severe infection and had to be delivered. So my two sons, they, you know, they weighed one pound, 11 ounces and one pound, 13 ounces. And they were very, very ill. And they were in the intensive care unit for a long time. And, you know, my son, Victor has cerebral palsy, he's doing great. And my other son, Oliver, of course, on top of everything had a congenital heart defect that needed surgery. And he's had a couple of procedures now and is going to have a third open heart surgery. He was going to have an open heart surgery soon. So I was getting all of that information about things that I didn't really, like, I didn't know anything about pediatric heart disease and I didn't know anything about ventilators and all that stuff. And I just found dealing with the ICU so complex. And I just thought, how do people navigate this who don't have a medical degree? Like I, I could figure out, you know, I knew when to ask the nurses, I knew kind of when to challenge the doctors. I had a, had a more general concept of how to navigate. And I remember sitting in the, you know, sometimes you have to leave and go sit in the waiting room and you're there with other parents. And this doctor came out and spoke to this other parent and gave them news and they were, they left and they were crying. And I said, well, you can't help but over here. You're all sitting in the same room. There's no privacy. And I said, you know, actually what they told you was really good news, but they just hadn't understood it because, you know, the doctor had assumed, and that's kind of when I had this like light bulb moment that so many times in medicine, because we know it because it's like in our head, you know, that we think we've explained it well and and we haven't. And that that there's this real sort of, you know, if you sort of think about the hand of God painting on the Sistine Chapel with God's finger touching, it, you know, that we're this, we're apart. There's a big gap there and we need a bridge. And, you know, getting everybody more information about their bodies is a way to do that. I mean, obviously, we need to teach doctors how to communicate better, but that's a changing medical school curriculums is a slower process than getting the knowledge out to people. And people deserve to know how their body works. So after that sort of prematurity experience, I decided to write a book on prematurity. And I did. And it's called The Preemie Primer. And then after that was done, I was like, huh, you know what? I bet the same gap exists in my own backyard. Wow. Uh, maybe I should be looking to that. And so I opened my computer and started a WordPress account and started a blog and got on the Twitter at the time to promote it all. And, and then, you know, here we are today. It just kind of started to snowball and snowball and people were hungry for that information. And, you know, the 
the celebrities were just starting to encroach into healthcare, which don't get health advice from celebrities. Absolutely do not, do not. Fashion advice, sure. Lighting advice, sure. And it just started to snowball. And, you know, people started asking me to write more and more content. And then I decided to write the Vagina Bible. And then now here we are on the sort of the, the third book in that series, which is Blood. And it's all about menstruation. Yeah, I just got it. What are you seeing in your practice and your experience and then even in your social community, which is so large, what would you say are the primary pieces of misinformation that women are walking around with? What do we know the least about or what do we know poorly or what do we know incorrectly that you see as heavily affecting just the experience of of women? Well, you know, I think that you know, we're all obviously biased by what we do. And I practice, you know, a lot of obviously menopause care and a lot of vulvar and vaginal care. And I think it just, I think it really is, I hate to say the whole thing, but, but it really is. I mean, people still believe the hymen is a thing. Like they really still do. They think it's like a freshness seal. They think it's something to break. And like, it isn't, it's a little bit of tissue. That's, that's not even generally there, or it's like nothing by the time, you know, you were, you know, you're starting to get estrogen and becoming, you know, entering sort of into puberty. It's, it's not a thing, but you, it's so ingrained since the beginning of time that getting people to, to disbelieve that is so, or to undo that misinformation is hard. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there's people who apparently still think there's toxins in menstrual blood. And, you know, it's, these are ancient patriarchal beliefs that all come from the idea that the female body is a, is an inferior or damaged version of a male body. So it's really fascinating to me that we're still talking about things that is like, like, really, you, we're still talking about that? But that just shows the power of disinformation. And that's why it's so important, I think, for people to curate their social media feeds. You know, if somebody is spreading disinformation, block them. There's enough good content creators who don't. You don't need it. It doesn't matter how good their makeup advice is or how many of your friends are following them. If they're telling you that menstrual blood has toxins, then you should block them. Because you you can't trust anything else they're saying then either, right? And then if you think about that and move on towards menopause. So these are all things we just don't talk about. We don't talk about the vulva and vagina. We don't talk about menstruation. And we don't talk about menopause. So if you don't have that foundation of knowing about the menstrual cycle and knowing about how it all works, it's then even harder to understand what's going through sort of, you know, with menopause. I mean, when I wrote my book, The Menopause Manifesto, I initially didn't have this big chapter. The chapter on the menstrual cycle was much smaller. And my publisher's like, you know, I hate to tell you this, my editor, but I don't really understand the menstrual cycle. So could you do more? Could you do a bigger chapter? And that's a great example of, I think what's in my head, everybody knows, but I won't know what you don't know unless I communicate with you. Right. So, you know, so that was, you know, again, one of these other moments, like you, you know, and I try to put myself in the position, you know, I don't know anything about cars. Like they freak me out. Like I like, I just don't know. And when I go to the dealership and they're like, you know, doing this service and they start talking about like some car part and what needs to be like replaced. Yeah. Good I example. freeze up. I freeze up. Totally. I've heard the words. I know what a spark plug is. I've heard about a spark plug. I know about like a fan belt. I've heard those words, 
but I don't really know what any of it means. And so I freeze and then I'm just find myself going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I'll leave and I'll go, I have no idea what I just paid for. And I think that that's probably a very similar experience to a lot of people sitting in the doctor's office. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Astapro and go. I'd like to hear you talk about your experience with the onset of menopause, with your patients, with your community, what we don't understand correctly. Why is there still stigma attached to this? And I felt like I've been now through a handful of stages that have to do heavily with my body. And I felt like I had just a barrage of information when I was pregnant. Now that, that was everywhere. I I couldn't escape everything to do with my body, pregnancy, babies, childbirth, lactating, nursing, all here at menopause. It's like crickets. (laughs) I, I, so I appreciate your, your investment in this conversation. And I'd love to hear you talk through your experience and your observations here. Well, I just like to back up a little bit and say, you know what? Most people are also unprepared for puberty, but you just didn't. Oh, yes. That, you're right? so right. Right. You are so, so right. You know, you wake up and you have this greasy skin that you never had before. And then totally. all of a sudden you're uh, like three inches taller and you're tripping and your it's body so is just real. like weird and your clothes don't fit. So, so I always like to remind people that actually you've been through something like this before and you were probably as unprepared and as freaked out. And you might've known that periods were coming and part of it, but you were probably unprepared for the experience of wearing a bra and unprepared for all these experiences, right? So it's very similar to that. So I like to remind people that first of all, you've done this before. And it's also like knowing that you're like, and basically menopause is puberty in reverse. It really is. And the problem when we don't talk about it and people aren't expecting these normal things that are part of puberty to happen, right? So think about a hundred years ago, or probably even 50 years ago, when they didn't tell girls that you're going to get your period, they would wake up in the middle of the night thinking they were dying and be like hysterical and screaming. And their mothers would be like, oh, that's just what happens. Right. Like that's, that was my own mother's experience. Like she thought she was bleeding to death. And, you know, her sister had just been put in a sanatorium for tuberculosis because she'd been vomiting blood. So of course, you know, wouldn't you think that that was going to happen to you too, right? We don't tell people anything that's happening. So then when it happens, they're not prepared. And then they think there's something uniquely wrong or there's a medical problem. And it doesn't mean that you should put up with bothersome symptoms, but there's a difference between a bothersome symptom that's an expected thing, right? And a bothersome symptom, that's a sign of a medical problem. 
Those are different things. And so when people don't have that information, and then what happens is they go to a medical provider who says, oh, well, that's normal. Okay, but that might be normal. But normal doesn't also mean something you have to deal with. Like, for example, morning sickness. That's pretty normal in pregnancy. Lots of people have it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't treat it, right? So, you know, so there are lots of things that are sort of within the bounds of what we expect the body to do. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't treat them. So, you know, so so then they they don't have information and things then can sometimes spiral. And what happens when you don't have information? You get anxious. And what happens when you get anxious? Your symptoms get worse. And then what happens? You're at three in the morning and now you're looking on some charlatan's website who's telling you that hormone pellets are going to save your life. And since your doctor hasn't offered you anything, you go down that route. It's so easy to see how it happens. And for me, the way to sort of prevent that is good information. And we know that that's also a really effective way to help prevent, to sort of insulate people from disinformation is if you know it in advance, you could be like, okay, I just closed that webpage. That's silly. And so, you know, so it's really about having that information because it's still very pervasive. Another example I give is menstrual diarrhea. That's really common about, you know, 18% of people who menstruate who have it. That's a lot. That's 9% of the world's population will experience it at some point. And every single time I talk about it, I bet you there'll be a listener to this podcast who'll think, oh, I had menstrual diarrhea and I thought I was the only one. Every single time, 9% of the world's population, like that's about the same percentage as asthma, but everybody's heard of asthma, right? So it gives you an idea about how pervasive the lack of discussion and the lack of information is. This is a really broad question, of course, but to your point, knowing I have a lot of women in my community that'll be listening to this that are just edging up into their early 40s they're they're about to hit this stage can you just in general terms and of course no two bodies are identical I know that and the symptoms are it's a wide range can you just discuss in general these are the normal a handful of the normal expectations that any given woman can probably have as they approach perimenopause. Um, so that, because you're so right, being not taken by surprise is a huge factor in how we manage it and manage our bodies and even understand what's going on with us. And so can you just talk the sort of the umbrella terms, this is what this is going to look like for this stage, more or less. Sure. So it's all speaking in kind of averages and generability and understanding there are people outside of two standard deviations on either side. So the average age of menopause, so menopause is the final menstrual period. So you're done. There's no more after that. It's a diagnosis made in retrospect. I mean, we don't know you've had it till you've gone a year without a period because we don't know you're not going to have another one until we've waited. And that's okay. You know what? Puberty is also a diagnosis in retrospect. We didn't realize you'd entered puberty until you're like, oh, you've actually been growing. So that's okay. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need blood tests if you're 51 or anything like that to tell if you're menopausal. Sometimes you might need blood tests to make sure your symptoms aren't from something else, but you know, but so 51. And so that's the average age. The, the typical range is 45 to 54. So anytime within that range would be a normal experience. We would expect your period to stop before it stops. It almost always gets irregular. 
Now there maybe is the the golden experience of having a regular cycle up until the end, and but that's very atypical. So most people, what will happen is they'll start what we call the menopause transition, which what most people themselves call perimenopause, but it, we call it the menopause transition. And the average age of onset for that is 45. So that means some women in their early 40s will be starting and some women, you know, in their mid to late 40s. And the menopause transition is when there's starting to be more changes at a biochemical level with the menstrual cycle. And you'll start to notice that by some subtle changes to your menstrual period. So you, some people notice a shortening first. So kind of like every maybe 21 to 22 days, that doesn't happen to everybody, but that's what happens to some people. And then the cycle will lengthen a little bit. So maybe it'll be like, you know, you'll, you'll have uh, instead of a, you know, a 30 day cycle, you'll have like a 35 day cycle, but that might happen for one or two. And then it might go back to your typical for a few months. And then what will happen is you'll start to notice that you're going 60 days between a period. So you might go, and then that might go back to normal for a bit. And then you might, but once you start going, skipping a period, menopause is generally between one to three years away. And again, there's a variation, that's sort of a generality. And the bleeding can often be much heavier. And what's happening during that time is not an orderly sort of winding down of ovarian function. It's actually very chaotic. Some months you can be producing more estrogen than normal. Some months you can be producing less. Some months you can be producing the normal amount of progesterone. Some months you might not produce any progesterone. And not all of the bleeding is ovulatory. So you could be having a period, but you didn't ovulate. And so that's that whole menopause transition experience. And that can produce for some people, other symptoms. So for some people, depression can be part of the menopause transition. Some people, hot flashes start early for some people in the menopause transition. And for some people, they don't start until around the final period. Everybody's very different with that experience. Palpitations are things that people can also report. Weight gain around the middle, which is actually not really hormonally related, it's actually age related. And everybody hates to hear this, but they did a great study where they plotted women's weights and followed them over time. And the trajectory for where their weight changed had nothing to do with when their hormones changed. It was simply an age-related march. Some people report drier skin, vaginal dryness is certainly a part of it, being with sex. And those are, you know, some of the more common experiences. It doesn't mean that they're normal in that we expect them, but that doesn't mean that you should tolerate them. If you have vaginal dryness, there's treatment. If you have hot flashes, there's treatment. If you have depression, there's treatment. So these are all things that should, that can absolutely be treated and, and should be treated. And so that's kind of the, the sort of the experience. And that sort of chaoticness of hormones is why hormone testing doesn't help us because one month you can look like you're not in menopause and the other month you can look like you're in menopause and then go right back to having a normal cycle. So it's of no value to check hormones with your chaotic cycles to see where you are in menopause. It can be useful to rule out other conditions that can masquerade as the menopause transition. So Sometimes people lose their periods for other reasons. And so if you're getting hormone testing, the time that we would recommend it is if you're under age 45 and you've skipped at least two periods in a row. Some people say three, some people say two, but that would be when we'd say, hey, we need to check is this premature menopause? So that's under the age between 40 and 44 or primary ovarian insufficiency, which means before age 40.
And so that's when hormone testing is important. And that's kind of the gestalt of the experience. So really the better diagnostic tool is self-awareness, is paying attention to your own body and your own cycles. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah. There's people get very hung up on there not being a test for menopause. And I just always get back to, there's no test for puberty. And that very first menstrual cycle you had may not have been ovulation. You may not have ovulated. Do you care? Does it matter? No. So it's one of these things that it just, it has no bearing and it's very difficult because we live in a very testing based society and we equate testing with caring. The doctor listened to me, they ordered tests. Actually, I would argue that if a doctor listened to you really well, then hopefully they can explain to you also why testing isn't indicated. It may be for some things, but there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of, of doing tests that are unindicated for this. I was having a long text thread last night with some of my best friends about this. I mean, we, for an hour, back and forth from all, all states all around going, what do you guys know? And comparing some of our, our symptoms, which are disorienting. Although some of them are just natural and we're going to go through them just like we did puberty. I like how you keep comparing those two. You can't fix puberty. (laughs) You're just going to feel what you're going to feel. But what do you suggest as some of the practices, if you will, or habits or whatever, to manage the changes in a way that don't make us feel like we're just walking around with like bananas brain fog all the time? So, oh, brain fog is also one of the symptoms of the menopause transition. I forgot about that. And it's not a sign of dementia. So you need to worry about that. So there's a couple of things that I would say. So first of all, a lot of times people come in exactly like you're saying, and they're kind of, they feel like they're all over the place. What I tell people to do is make a list of what is bothering you. You've got to put it down on paper. You've got to get what's bothering you in a list. You've got to organize it. Because sometimes people come in and then they're like, well, this is bad and this, and then it's like, and it can be difficult sometimes in that moment because people feel very pressured in a short doctor's visit to sort of get through like everything. And sometimes all these things are related and sometimes they're not. And so I tell people, I want you to make a list of the things that are bothering you. Make the list, write it down and put it in the order of what's bothering you the most. Like if I had a magic wand, what could I do today to fix the first thing? make the list and let your doctor know about the list because sometimes things that don't bother you bother me. So for example, if you were 50 and having weird bleeding between cycles and had other risk factors for endometrial cancer, I'd be more bothered by that bleeding probably than you are because I'd want to rule out endometrial cancer. Or you might be like, oh, well, you know, I'm having blinding headaches, but they're not really bothering me and they're new and they're all on one side and I lose my vision. Like you might be like, oh, that doesn't bother me, but I'm like a doctor. I'm like, I'm really bothered by that. So you have to just give your doctor a chance to be like, whoa, wait a minute. There's like a red flag on your list. And then what I tell people is, okay, when I look at this list, we're going to start with the first two. That's it. You can't, you can't treat 12 things at once. And sometimes some of the other things are related to maybe those more more bothersome things. Maybe if you're not bothered by the lack of sleep from hot flashes, maybe some of those other things actually aren't be so bad after all, right? So let's start with the first two and then work down the list. So that would, that's what I recommend doing. Then the other thing I recommend doing is I say, now we need to talk about the foundation for your menopause because medicine can only do so much. And the best 
thing for menopause and nobody likes to hear this and I don't like to hear it either is exercise. There is absolutely, if you could only do one intervention for a healthy menopause, it would not be estrogen. It would be exercise. Exercise touches every domain of every single thing that's going to be on your bothersome list. Exercise improves sleep. Exercise reduces dementia. Exercise reduces heart disease. The only thing it doesn't really help is hot flashes, really. Like that's about the only thing it's not going to help. So you need to think about what am I going to do to keep my body healthy for the next 50 years? right? Because you're also going to start having, in addition to menopause related changes to muscle mass and bone, you're going to have age related changes to your body. And so you want to think about how much am I moving every day? Can I start a resistance weightlifting type of program? And what kind of cardio am I doing? And you need to commit to those things because I do see women who come in the office and they have this whole list of symptoms. And then I ask them, when's the last time they went for a walk? And they can't tell me. And sometimes it is very difficult to figure out, especially, gosh, for people who have long working hours and things like that. But these things are very important and medicine can only do so much. So I, I, at the same time, I talk about the foundation. I also talk about how much fiber are you having a day in your diet? I don't talk to people about like, you know, why you should and shouldn't be eating most, you know, most people know what's good and what isn't. You want to make sure you're having fruits and vegetables and things, but you want to make sure you're having 25 grams of fiber a day. And the reason for that is it's good for your colon. It's good for your health overall. It makes you feel full. And, you know, many women are concerned about menopause related weight gain and a high fiber diet is a good way to try to help counteract that because a high fiber diet helps people feel full. And also it reduces constipation and nobody's happy when they're constipated. Right. So, right. And I like the idea about focusing on fiber because it's not being restrictive and taking something away right? You're saying, what can I add into my diet? That's super healthy. That's going to be really good for me. As opposed to what can I take away something that I'm enjoying? Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I find the information, the competing information dense and confusing. And so 
I feel like swirling into my ears in snippets and in incomplete forms and from sources both legitimate and not are talking all over the place about hormone replacement therapy and estrogen and progesterone and biosynthetical hormones and synthetic, I don't know how to assess it all. And so I wonder if you could just tell us in normal people's terms, what you think here, what's quackadoo, what is real, what's not real. I don't know how to filter that information. Sure. So if anybody's scaring you about a hormone being synthetic or not bio or whatever, they're an idiot or they're a grifter and you should block them. That's it. You are talking to me on a synthetic device. You are living, you probably have all kinds of things in your house that, you know, what are you supposed to do? Like, you know, like give away everything in your modern society, modern medicine for a reason. And people who do, who make claims about synthetic hormones clearly have zero understanding of the process behind making them because I can make a synthetic estradiol. Well, I can't because I'm not a chemist, but I can get a chemist to make a synthetic estradiol that looks identical to what your body makes. I can get that. So what's the problem with that? It's a replica. So there are hormones that are synthetic in the way that we call them novel hormones, things that are made to be better, right? Many novel drugs save your lives. Chemotherapy drugs are not often synthetic. What's the problem with that? Do you have a problem with that drug saving your life? No, you don't. And so people are using it for a grift. So if they're starting to talk about, well, we don't use nasty synthetic hormones, just block them. Just block them. They, they are not, they're either not intelligent enough to understand the science or they don't care. I, there's no other excuse for it. So every single hormone that you get, whether it's a pharmaceutical estrogen or it's something from a compounding pharmacy comes from the exact same plant, all from the same source. It comes from, they take soybeans and they, they run it through all kinds of nasty, awful sounding chemicals that if I told you about, you'd be like, oh, you get scared. They take this, they extract a chemical that's not a hormone, and then they expose it to other chemicals to break the bonds, to turn it into estradiol. That is how every estrogen, every progesterone, every testosterone is made. That's the only way to make them that's feasible. We can make them synthetically, meaning assemble them from other chemicals not found in nature, but it's more expensive. So they make them from, they're all made that way. It's a hard stretch to say that's plant-based because you've exposed it to like 10 different solvents and things and stuff, right? So you've taken a chemical, broken it apart and made it into something else. That is how every estrogen is made. The ones that you get from a pharmaceutical company are made in a precise way that you know how much is in them and they have been studied. And I can tell you exactly how much you've been absorbing. Ones from compounding pharmacies are made in a less accurate way may contain impurities. Many of these pharmacies have had warning letters from the FDA, and I have no idea how much you're getting absorbed. So which product do you want? Do you want the one that is like having a gas tank with an accurate read on it? Or do you want the one that has a non-functional gas tank? You want to know what's going in your body. And so compounding hormones does not do anything special. In fact, it makes them less effective and less good. So there was a recent study that came out that showing if you have a pharmacist mix up the hormones, you're absorbing less, which makes sense because 
when a pharmaceutical company takes a product to market, they have like sometimes 15 or 20 years worth of bench research behind how to make that molecule get into your body. You can't just take a product, mix it up in a cream and put it on your skin and hope it's going to get it get absorbed. It's very important to have the right polarity, the right acid base balance. All these things matter significantly. So that's kind of in a nutshell. You want a pharmaceutical hormone from a pharmaceutical company. That is the only thing that I would trust with my body. If somebody only has hormones for you and they don't give you other options, that's also not a menopause expert because a menopause expert will talk to you about everything. Now, there may be a better option for you, but you know what? Sometimes people hear the whole spiel about hormones and they're like, I want to take that other medication. And you're like, okay. And you give them that other medication because that's informed choice. You give somebody all the information about all the options. So I would be very worried about people who only talk about estrogen. It is the gold standard for hot flashes. Absolutely. But not everybody wants it. Not everybody likes how they feel on it. And these are important considerations. You want to be able to know that there are other medications that can be used for hot flashes. You might not want them. Okay. Hey, that's fine. But then you've heard and you've made the choice, right? As opposed to never being able to make the choice. It's not hard to have the discussion. I can tell someone about the different drugs in about seven minutes. It's not, it's not difficult. But if someone's telling you that estrogen is going to fix everything in your life, that should also be a red flag because it's not. Estrogen doesn't treat brain fog, for example. Not at all. So yeah, that that's kind of the spiel about, you know, all hormones, all of them are made from soybeans. They're all in a way that is, should no way be thought of as like natural or plant-based. And when a compounding pharmacy buys the raw hormone, they get it from the same place the pharmaceutical company gets the raw hormone. Thank goodness that there are doctors like you. This is your work and this is your area of expertise. One last question for you. I know this is a, there's just a, it's just such a complicated and nuanced conversation. Of course, we could talk about it for hours and a million, a million hours. But if you could just sum it up, what would you say is the, maybe the number one way that we can diffuse the the fear or the helplessness we have all felt at one point or another during our journey in these female bodies and walk away empowered and informed and peaceful in our bodies, whatever stage we're in? Sure. So. Before hormones were invented in the 1900s, women live longer than men. So there's that. We believe that menopause exists because it was useful to the collective. So it's called the grandmother hypothesis. You know, evolution is invested in passing the genetics along, but how does that work when you're menopausal? Because you don't have genetics you can pass along anymore. Well, it turns out that having a useful person who knows about child rearing in the house is helpful. Who would have thought, right? Imagine. So imagine that an extra pair of hands. So when you have an extra pair of hands, that frees you up to actually have more children. For example, there's studies with the Hadza in Tanzania. And when there's a grandmother in the house during pregnancy and breastfeeding, she's spending 37 hours a week foraging for food. She's providing the bulk of the calories for the family unit. Wow. Don't you think if, if you think about if you were pregnant or breastfeeding and you had someone doing all the food collection and all the food prep for you, you'd be like, whoa, this makes my life so much easier, right? Completely. Like, right. So, so the idea that menopause is irrelevant, the idea that 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 women 
women have no value after menopause is a patriarchal construct that is not based in science. And that this is the wise woman hypothesis. And, you know, there's a reason why in all of literature, there's this crone archetype who's this like a knowledgeable woman. And, and this is what we have. So I would say that, that menopause is another phase of life. Unfortunately, women get to have more problematic phases of life. We, you know, we have, we bleed and we go through puberty. We have to deal with pregnancy and, and we have to deal with menopause. And there are terrible repercussions from a patriarchal society, not taking those seriously. Right. So that's all there, but anybody who tells you that you're lesser because you're in menopause, anybody who, who tells you these things, they're, they're the one who's in the wrong, that there is all of this strength, all we are standing on the shoulders of all the women before us who were these wise women who guided society in many, many ways. They guided families. And that's been oppressed out of us by the patriarchy. And I think it's really time for us to claim that. And people are doing that in all different kinds of ways, by having more knowledge, by passing knowledge along, by talking about menopause, by seeing incredibly successful women who are clearly menopausal, right? Like, you know, see, I I love to see, you know, some woman like in her 50s or 60s or 70s, like top of her game, just like ripping someone apart on tell it, you know, we we need to to show that, you know, we have this, we are valuable through our whole lifespans and you're you're more than your menstrual cycle. And I'll just end with you're awesome, whether you have estrogen or not, it has nothing to do with your awesomeness. It really doesn't. That's right. I'm going to collect everything about you, all your work, all your books, all your links, all your social handles, link to your news, everything for my listeners. I'll round that up. You guys in one spot for you, you're a voice I listen to intensely right now. And I'm so grateful for it. Absolute final question. Everybody gets this every series, no matter what, please answer this. However you want. It can be like earnest or absurd. What is saving your life right now? Oh, this is a terrible thing. On sure. <laughs> you know, the male replacement drink. Of I've course. Been, yeah. I've actually been quite ill. Mm. I don't know what I had. Maybe COVID I tested negative. Oh gosh. Anyway, I was, the hosp- I was in the hospital with dehydration. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And it's left me with terrible gastroesophageal reflux. And the only thing I, the only thing I can really tolerate right now is onshore meal replacement drinks. So go science, go. So I'm like, so you're just drinking them hand over fist. Basically. Yeah. Because you got to get your protein in that's super important for menopausal women. You got to have your protein. That's the other thing to make sure you're adding in besides fiber. Fiber. Yeah. So Onshore has, I feel like an ad, I'm not sponsored by them at all, but it has 30, (laughs) it has 30 grams of protein for 150 calories. Like how can you beat that? So you can't, you can't, and you have been drinking it on this very show. So you are telling the truth. (laughs) So it is like a literally, yes, right now, literally answered that very literally. (laughs) You did. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank you for being on here today. Thank you for answering my questions and for just talking to us so plain and so directly. It's such a relief after getting such like obscure, dense information from so many sources. So, okay. Delighted to have met you. you. Nice to meet you, Dr. Gunter. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, you guys, as mentioned, I will round up everything. You're going to want access to everything that 
Dr. Gunter is doing and talking about and writing about. So if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, I'll have this latest episode. I'll have the show notes and we'll round up all the links in one spot so you can follow her and put yourself kind of under her leadership and you will be so glad that you did. I am so happy that we are having this conversation in my community and I'm learning so much. I learned a lot in that conversation. I love how she doesn't just bog it all down with like lingo and language that are hard to parse out, but she just says it directly to you. So more to come in this awesome series, Facing Our Fears. And as always, we so look forward to hearing from you, your response to any given conversation or guest. We follow that. We follow the lead of the community. Like this is what we want to learn about. This is where we, these are the conversations we want to listen into. And so thank you for all your feedback, which includes reviews and ratings. And then of course, comments on the social feedback when these are posted. So on behalf of Laura and her production team and Amanda and I, we surely love you and we love putting the show together for you. And we are so grateful to serve you in this specific and exact way. All right, you guys, see you next week. The For the Love podcast with Jen Hatmaker is a presentation of Odyssey and produced by Four Eyes Media with Laura Neitzling, producer, Abby Stevens, production director, Gregory DeMario, production assistant, and Lauren Winfield, researcher. Odyssey's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Special thanks to the team at Odyssey, Maura Curran, Melissa Wester, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchinson, Eric Donnelly, Aaron Constantino, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schupf. Listen and follow For the Love, an Odyssey podcast produced by Four Eyes Media on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a production of Four Eyes Media.